Hey everyone, welcome to How Greats Create. I'm your host, Alex Crompton. I've been writing music my whole life. Recently, I decided I want to get better at it. But no one could tell me the answer to my one simple question. How do the best musicians write music? So I decided to ask them. How Greats Create is a podcast where I interview world-class musicians I love, from pop to classical, and ask them how they write music. Of course, there's no magic formula, but I'm certain we can get pretty close. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social media so you know when new episodes come out. And if you enjoy this episode, I'd really appreciate you leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing it with a friend. It makes a big difference in reaching more people. Enjoy. So, today I have a very special guest with me, Nicholas Namorate. Nicholas is, in short, one of the best pianists in the world. It's hard to do him justice and to have time left for a podcast, so here are some highlights. Nicholas shot to international recognition in 2018 after winning the Honens International Piano Competition, one of the biggest competition prizes in classical music. As a result, he's since played all around the world to sold-out audiences and rave critical reviews. He's known for being technically brilliant, but also unusual in the classical world. He often plays little-known pieces, makes electronic music, and if you follow him on social media, you may even get the odd pop rendition or piano tuition lesson. Nicholas was born in Georgia, but as a child moved to Hungary. During his undergraduate studies, he met pianist Emmanuel Axe, who was invited to study with him and composer John Cogliano at the Juilliard School. He's currently doing his doctorate at CUNY, where he holds the Graduate Centre Fellowship. You can find links to Nicholas' website and works in the description below. So, nice to have you. Welcome. Thanks so much for the invitation. Great to be on. Maybe you can start by just talking us through when you first started writing music and your memories of that. Well, interestingly enough, for me, performing and composing were always two sides of the same coin when I began involving myself more actively in music. So as a child, I had always been fascinated by music. Apparently, at the age of one, I'd get stuck to the record player listening to, I don't know, Wagner operas, and I couldn't be dragged away. So there was that clear connection as a child, but we never had an instrument at home, so... My parents are not musicians. My mother must have been very talented as a child. She played the piano and I think uh, made a lot of progress in the short amount of time that she played. But yeah, I didn't grow up in a kind of automatically musical household, so it wasn't a natural thing for me to do. Yet that connection was always there. And I always had musical obsessions as a child. And at the age of seven, I expressed the interest to learn an instrument. I chose the piano because I knew that the great composers like Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, they all played keyboard instruments in particular, either the harpsichord, which would have been in Bach's case, or or the piano. And for me, it just seemed like the most natural thing to write as soon as I started playing. So after a couple of piano lessons, after I simply figured out how to notate music, I was just scribbling away. So it seemed very natural. It was only when I was in my teenage years that I got it into my head that I have to just focus on practicing and as well as attending the pre-college of the music university in Budapest, which is where I grew up, I was also attending a regular kind of British international school where I did the IB and all that. So I had so much going on that kind of composition fell to the wayside. It was in my university years, especially at Juilliard, that kind of composition became, again, a main focus for me. And 
you know, since then I've kind of been dividing my time between being a composer and a pianist. So that's kind of kind of the story of my composition life. Maybe you can explain why composition and performance are not necessarily always linked in the classical world because I think that's something that's as someone who grew up playing guitar part of the reason you pick up guitar is like play your favorite songs and make stuff that sounds like it right why is that not the same it's a very unusual thing and it's a relatively recent phenomenon actually so in music history everyone who played composed everyone who composed performed there wasn't this kind of strict division between performers and composers. However, it was in the 20th century that this split really happened. I guess it was perhaps a part of this, you know, general trend towards specialization that happened in every field, you know. You don't have polymaths like Leonardo da Vinci anymore who are, you know, proficient in the arts and sciences and all these different things. You have some who specializes not only in science, but in a very, very particular field of science. And the same applies to other fields. I mean, this kind of separation between performers and creators is, of course, present in other art forms like dance, for example. You have dancers who are not choreographers. They might become choreographers once they retire from dancing, but there is that separation. Again, not all actors write their own screenplays or their own plays or direct. So that kind of separation is more natural in many other artistic fields. In classical music, this was a relatively late phenomenon, which, as I said, happened in the 20th century. But now I think this idea of the performer-composer is coming back into fashion. And there are several successful pianist composers, violinist composers, or other kinds of performer composers of my generation that that are kind of bringing this back into vogue, so to say. So, yeah, it's it's an unusual thing, and I think it's quite unfortunate that this separation happened, uh, because for me, at least, my life as a composer has been one of my greatest teachers for my piano playing, and my experience as a performer also has been one of the most important influences on my composing. So it's really a kind of symbiotic relationship between the two. Mm. And so do you remember any of the first things that you wrote? What kind of things were you writing? Yeah, I, I have some, you know, loose pieces of paper with those initial kind of scribbling somewhere in the box, you know, in the cellar. I, 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 rem- I remember one piece. I remember how it goes, actually, which was called, like, the Christmas cookie dance. <laughs> yeah, I must have been, what, seven when I wrote it or something. Yeah. Really kind of a world premiere. I know, I know. Exactly. <laughs> I'll just revise it, you know, and, and, and I, I polish it a little, and then it's ready for Carnegie Hall by next year. So, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, definitely as a young composer, when I was, you know, seven, eight, nine, I would at times, you know, take different composers to write pastiches of, like, you know, in the style of this or that person. And interestingly enough, after this kind of break from composing, when I came back to writing in my early 20s, somehow my new voice was already set. So the first piece I wrote then was already in my essentially new style, which has been in, you know, the way I've been writing ever since then. It was as if during the years when I wasn't composing, something in the back of my head was kind of germinating and and kind of my approach to creating music had still been developing while I was not actively writing. So that when I put pen to paper for the first time in many, many years, 
this kind of conception of creating music had already been set somehow, and I didn't need a couple of years to kind of find my voice again. Because I think that I was always studying composition when I was performing. I was studying the music, I was analyzing it, you know, maybe not always literally with a pen and paper, you know, writing down analyses, but in my head I was understanding how these pieces are put together. What are the processes that the composer went through to create this music that I am now playing? And as a performer, you a lot of the time have to put yourself in the position of the composer. Okay, why did the composer write what they did? And how do I bring myself to a better understanding of that in order to perform it more convincingly? You know, the thing is that music notation is a very inadequate system. It's the best we have, but these notes on a piece of paper only communicate what 10-20% of what a composer will want a, com a performer to know about performing the piece. So you have to put yourself kind of in the composer's mindset to, to approach this and read how to, you know, learn how to read between the lines, essentially. You know, when I write music, there's so much that I wish the performer simply understood about how to perform this piece, but those aren't things I can mark in the score. Those are things that a performer would hopefully, hopefully understand about my music and my style from knowing me and knowing the music I've written. So it's the same thing that you have to do with other people's music. You have to really understand their idiom, their voice, in order to kind of communicate the musical material of that piece as effectively as possible. It's like, you know, a, an actor just trying to put themselves, you know, just to take a very, very basic example, in the mindset of a playwright, let's say if you're doing Hamlet, you'll try to think, why did Shakespeare write the things he wrote? What was it that he was trying to communicate? How can I bring these words on the page to life? That doesn't mean that they have to perform it in the way Shakespeare would have heard his plays performed. The accents are different. The kind of themes will be different. What you bring out of the character may be different. But you have to be true to... The, the play, the, the, the material in any case. And that's kind of what you have to do when you are thinking about how the piece is put together. If that um, makes any sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's maybe a silly question, but I guess in other forms of music, you have more license to just actually change the, like if it were to be notated, to change the way that it was notated, right? right. Like, is that true in your field or not as in how much license do you actually have so yes you don't often have this idea in classical music you know of the remix you know <laughs> you take one of the piece you change the instrumentation you you, you change yeah. everything around it but like the basic elements of the melody or tune are still there in that case you are essentially rearranging the piece which exists there have been people rearranging music for centuries you know it will be like, you know, first composer's name, dash, second composer's name. So that's kind of a transcription, an arrangement, a paraphrase. There are many different words used for these kinds of pieces. But if you are playing someone else's music without inserting your own, you know, uh, compositional ego <laughs> into the mix, then you aren't really changing 
the notes unless the style of music allows you to. For example, uh, central parts of performing Baroque music, 17th century music, even, you know, 18th century music, even early 19th century music, it depends on which, which period of time we're looking at, is ornamentation. Sometimes adding embellishments, adding flourishes that are not written. That would have been part of the performance practice of the time. So that in, in that case, yes, one can do things like that. But, for example, if I were to take a composer such as Claude Debussy, we're talking early 20th century here, that kind of writing mandates a very, very strict adherence to what's written. So one would not change the material. It's, it would be the same if I were to take a play, do, can I change the words? <laughs> Am I allowed to do that as a performer? Or would that already be a kind of rewriting of, of the material, which of course happens when a play or a book is adapted for the screen, for example, then obviously you have a team of people who are adapting that material for a different medium. So yes, in that case, that will happen. But I would not ex expect, for example, in, in the majority of, of the kind of theatrical canon for actors to start ad-libbing <laughs> and changing the words written, that really wouldn't happen. So yeah. you don't have this division in other musical genres as much of the performer-composer generally because, you know, when we think about a piece of music by a certain artist, that performance and that piece of music is associated with that artist. Yeah. A, you know, uh, uh, Highway to Hell is a piece for ACDC. <laughs> it's written by or for them, yeah. for them to perform, so it's not like ACDC, sorry, uh, Highway to Hell is like a part of the canon and everyone who goes to school performs it and it, you have to do it at your end of term exam. You know, it's, it's not like that. Artists have their own music in, in the pop sphere and in, in rock, with some exceptions. Uh, and of course, if someone does a cover, then that's different. They yeah. are inserting more of their own kind of creative powers in the process classical music operates somewhat differently. You have a kind of set, kind of set in stone, you know, uh, series of pieces that, that, that are performed through the years. You know, classical music has been accused of having this kind of museum culture when it comes to both the approach to the music that's been written over the past several hundred years and also the culture of consuming it, that you have to sit very quietly in the concert hall, you know, you can't talk to your neighbor, you can't scream or shout, you're, you know, frowned upon if you clap at the wrong time. So these are issues that the sphere is dealing with and there are, of course, many attempts to make it more accessible and easier for people who are not so familiar with this sphere to kind of enjoy it. The problem with classical music is it can be rather insular, so it needs a certain amount of familiarity for you to really, really engage with it. It's not mm. a field that's easy to jump into without much prior experience. It requires a kind of investment of time in, in, in both understanding how the music is presented and what the building blocks are of that music for one to really understand what's going on. So it's, it's a kind of unusual field compared mm. to other kinds of music consumed today. Mm. 
I remember chatting with a friend of mine. Uh, so I have a weird thing where I can't really taste, like I, I uh, for a variety of reasons. And um, so I remember thinking it was very weird that people privilege grapes so much within the drinks world. As in, there are many alcoholic drinks you could make out of many fruits, but for some reason we love grapes. And so I was asking my friend about this, who's a winemaker, and he said that the part of the reason why they're so important is because it's only through having tasted, you know, a hundred or a thousand different wines of the same type of grape that are supposed to have a particular taste that you can understand the differences that make them good or bad. Whereas if you, and so I, it kind of reminds me of the same thing where it's like, if you don't have this common reference point, then it's impossible to really perceive the differences, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, if you drink the same glass of wine, generally, or if I, I'm not a great wine expert, if I were mm. to drink this, if any of us were to drink the same glass of wine as a wine expert or a sommelier, they would get much greater joy and pleasure out of it because of this great body of knowledge that they bring to the field than we would. We would enjoy it. It's a nice glass of wine, but you know, it's not going to be this kind of metaphysical experience. And you think about all the mm. other wines you've tasted from the same vineyard and uh, have this kind of great sense of reference points that, that enhance the experience. The same applies for classical music in that it's music that is designed for an audience that would have heard many, many other pieces in this genre. Because it's difficult to understate the effect the advent of recordings had on the way we consume and produce music. Mm. Until the early 20th century, when recordings became a thing, Classical composers, well, and even classic, classical as a term didn't really exist then. We're, we're, we're right. talking, you know, the great composers, they would write music, yes, for the concert hall, but not that many people could actually go to concert halls. Mm. So when music was written for consumption at home, how would it be consumed? By people actually playing it. So this music was written for people who were themselves musicians, who themselves would practice at home, would play, and would have had a lot of experience playing music. So that's like someone writing a, a, a theater piece just for playwrights or just for people in that sphere to consume. And of course, that will allow them to imbue those pieces with a much greater level of complexity and density that would not really come across to someone who has no experience in the field. Yet when recordings came about, people didn't need to be themselves active musicians to enjoy music at home. They could just turn on the you know, record player, they need not have ever touched an instrument in their lives. So music changed to match that. That's really when kind of classical music became, just conceived essentially uh, as an idea and became really relegated, is not the right word, but kind of cordoned off to a specialist field. And the whole world of popular music really took its place in the public consciousness as the kind of main medium for people to enjoy music because they no longer had to be experts in the field to enjoy it, and a, a different level of accessibility could be brought into the musical styles. And that's not to say that, you know, I'm creating a kind of preference here for a certain particular style. I mean, obviously, as a classical musician, I have my biases. But it's just that the way music is consumed allowed for a different kind of writing and a different kind of ability to reach greater audiences. So musical styles just changed accordingly. And, and that's how these kind of real separations between the genres became that much more stark.
Mm. And so how how does that view of history play into the things that you write now? Because I would say as a listener, the things that you write often feel very weird. Yes, like, absolutely. Like very like there's almost like a tactile, like a sensation you get rather than Sure. Yeah. Sure. I mean a lot of my a lot of my music tries to deconstruct simply what is sound. It's a kind of very yeah. uh, direct approach to, to the question of perceiving noise, sound, whatever, and, and this process of listening. Uh, it often depends on kind of the, the medium I'm writing for. So my work in film, for example, has used a lot of electronic music and the kind of electronic music that kind of puts you in a different mind space, a kind of slightly meditative, slightly kind of... Uh, I wouldn't say that it's on hallucinogens, but, you know, <laughs> it's kind of yeah. out there, definitely. My piano music, for example, is very much influenced by piano playing and the experience of performing and my fascination with kind of the mechanics of piano playing. How does the human hand navigate its way around the piano, which I think is a fascinating and very strange thing because... The piano is not ergonomic at all. It's actually a very awkward thing. And, and really, I think the adaptation of our hands to this instrument is, a, is an absolutely amazing thing. And being able to play in a controlled way on this instrument is, it requires a set of extremely complex emotions. It really sends the brain to its limits. So it's... It's been that fascination that has informed my, my piano writing. And generally, whatever instrument I write for, I, I, I'm really inspired by in terms of what that instrument can do and what are the kind of physical possibilities of that instrument, what are the, the, those instruments' possibilities in sound, kind of exploring the physicality of, of, of these, these you know, wooden, wooden, weirdly shaped things that produce these remarkable sounds. Mm. It's interesting when with some of your music you kind of caption it with the 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 basis and it's interesting how it almost feels like you're approaching things from a conceptual perspective rather than an emotional perspective if that makes sense yeah absolutely i mean my emo my compositional process is very much like that <laughs> you know i i don't often set out to write a piece of music because i want to express a particular feeling like, mm. oh, I, you know, I, I feel ecstatic because of X, Y, Z reason I'm going to write a happy piece. Of course, mm. to put it very, very kind of <laughs> yeah. in a very banal way, I don't mean to, you know, to, to say that, that that's not a perfectly honorable and, and necessary way of composing music. <laughs> but, you know, I'm often inspired by natural phenomena, sometimes the intersection between maths and music, you know, beautiful patterns like fractals or things like that. And I, I will kind of imagine a piece of music from top down, yeah. kind of seeing the whole piece, what it is I want to communicate, and just, just knowing what is the experience I want to put the audience through. Before I write a single note, it's not like I start with a tune in my head and expand on that. Almost never. It is rather kind of finding the architecture, finding the narrative of the piece, finding the effect I want it to have. Like the, it's more like a state of mind that I want to put my listener in. And then I find the tools to achieve that. So 
you know, it's not like, okay, I'll put together a combination of notes and then keep expanding on that. No, it's like, what do I want the listener to feel once they've finished listening to my piece? Like, what mm. is it? What is that experience that I want them to have had? And then mm. I find the tools to achieve it. Whether in finding the right notes, when, if I'm writing for instruments, or the right sounds, if I, I am writing for electronics, for example. I don't start uh, writing an electronic piece by sitting down at my laptop, you know, fiddling around in Logic or whatever software and finding sounds and then mixing them. No, I want to have the conception of the sound I want in my head without any limitations as to how well I know the software or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Like, what is the ideal sound I could have in my head if I could do anything? And then I try to simulate that as well as I can with whatever tools I have. But it always starts from the conceptual because, you know, I do the same thing when I find my interpretations for a piece of music I play. If I just work out of my own experience as a pianist, like I'm sitting at the piano, I'm playing the piece, and then I fiddle around with these different options, I'm kind of, I'll use the word limited by whatever I hear from what I'm already producing. Like, yeah. I'm used to it, this is what I'm playing, I make some tweaks and I think it's fine. But if I go away and I say, if I could do anything, if I had no physical limitations, if I could imagine the ideal version of this piece, like the ideal performance, if I were a demigod and I had superhuman powers and I could do anything, how would I want this piece to be played? And once I have that conception, then I work towards it. So the same thing in composition. I, I find that sound in my head, exactly what I want, very, very vividly. And it's not easy to do. It's taken a lot of practice for me to develop that kind of inner ear where I hear, you know, very, very precisely the, the, the kind of sound I want to be hearing. And then I find the ways to achieve that. And sometimes I get close enough to it. Sometimes I don't, but, you know, the product is yeah. fine. It's not like a listener will know what my conception was, you know, and, and they yeah. know that I failed at achieving it. But, <laughs> you know, but, but I feel that having that kind of, I think goal is maybe not the right word, but that kind of clear idea helps my work process become much more streamlined and much more focused and kind of directed rather than kind of feeling in the dark and hoping I stumble across something fine. Again, I've done a lot of feeling in the dark uh, and that kind of process is necessary, that kind of process of improvisation, experimentation, in order for one to acquaint oneself with basically what the tools are. But then I kind of translated uh, that process into a primarily mental one uh, which involves me just pacing my room back and forth and, and really letting my mind just go off on a tangent. And, and that's where I do the improvising in my head. Because one's much more acrobatic. Like my mental processes are much more flexible and much faster than me just sitting at a computer, sitting at an instrument. I, I can go from A to B and then to Z and any other infinite kind of combination of letters much, much faster. Because I have, you know, there are no limits. Just the imagination is a theater which allows one to do anything. So that, that, that's kind of primarily the creative process for me. It, it's a conceptual one. And I think the nature of the music then really reflects that. And when I write a description of the piece, I'm able to give the listener a bit of an insight into how this yeah. came about. It's really interesting that you, I guess, know how you want it to sound before it comes out. In that when I read the captions, maybe 
my interpretation of it was incorrect because my, my assumption when I was reading them was like, ah, oh, maybe you start with almost like in computer science, I guess you call it like a generative model. Essentially, you're saying, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I have the uh, almost like these procedures that I'm going to yeah. parameters that I'm going to apply, and then I'm going to see what the result is. I guess like the the adult version of one of those little spiral things you have when you're sure. a kid that makes a beautiful flower. Well, but like yeah, you, know, you don't know what the flower is going to look like until after you've drawn it, right? Whereas it's super interesting that you know what it's going to look like before well, you've drawn it. Well, kind of, I, I do that drawing in my head, essentially. So I, I do do that process, but it's, it, it happens in the conceptual sphere. You know, what you described is pretty much, for example, what fractals are. You know, fractals right. are a, a, a repetitive mathematic formula, pattern, that generates kind of these incredibly complex right. patterns, and which can be very unpredictable. So the way in which these self-referential kind of units then spiral out of control when one repeats them, you know, many, many mm. millions of times, it, it aren't things that we necessarily, you know, have, have a clear idea of when we begin. Mm. But, you know, those kinds of processes actually inspire me very much when I, when I compose. I'm always fascinated by how much can you get out of how little. So what's the mm. smallest kind of seed, the cell, you know, that, that, has kind of embedded in it, like like DNA, encoded all the information for you to build a whole tree, you know, or a whole living organism. I think, especially in, in, in classical music over the centuries, this idea of organicism and unity and everything referring back to the smallest unit has been a mm. constant fascination of for composers because, you know, we want our music to make sense. We want it to feel whole. And that, that, that it doesn't feel like a collage or a paper mache of just random things stuck together. Of course, there can be types of music that on purpose create very wild right. juxtapositions to kind of throw you off. And that's, a, that's also a perfectly good effect in itself. But, you know, this idea of these small patterns then generating more patterns and morphing into something else has certainly been a kind of idea that I've been fascinated by and it has made its way into my music. It's, it's a very interesting idea to follow along with as a listener when you're introduced to an idea at the beginning of a piece and you kind of can feel how it develops over time it's it's a very effective way to hold the listener's hand and make sure that they're with you throughout the process of the piece unless you want to directly throw them off you know but at the same time any wild juxtapositions will be more effective when there has been a steady flow until then and there's mm -hmm. been a logical sequence of events. You know, something loud is only going to be really effective if it comes in the context of quiet things. Because if everything is loud all the time, then it's not going to be that much of a surprise. So uh, a wild change, something unexpected, will be more effective if you've already given the listener a sense of comfort mm -hmm. and, you know, you set them up for something that's going to then throw them off. So any effect needs a context. Effects on their own don't do much. Uh, the, the way in which a composer can make them effective is by adjusting the context in which they're placed. So, you know, I think that, especially with electronic music, any, any well, a lot of the software has come with, you know, these prepackaged items, you know, sounds, loops, <laughs> effects, and these can change so much depending on what kind of context they're put in one can hear the same thing twice and not even realize they're the same thing, depending on kind of what happens around them. So, so 
that's taught me that context is everything in terms of a composition. And that's why this kind of sense of architecture, knowing where you want to place these ideas in the broader kind of storyline of the piece makes, I, I think, makes the process a lot easier in terms of really calibrating the effect that you want to have on the listener. Mm. How did you practice that or learn to do that? Because I guess it, yeah, I mean, I can play some instruments well, but I don't feel like I have a very good idea of how I, how I would practice better generating those kinds of ideas. Well, you know, I've always been attracted towards the cerebral, so it, it, it's been a kind of automatic thing, and it, it's, it, it's kind of an individual approach that I've taken. One that I also take in, in my performing as well, a lot of the work I do as a pianist is, is conceptual, kind of away from the piano. One way that I've helped myself to develop this capacity to imagine things in this kind of vivid way has been a lot of meditation. Actually, it's something yeah. I'm really big on. And I, I first got into it as a kind of way to enhance my pre-performance routine. But then I kind of went into it uh, with a kind of more scientific eye. And then I did take some courses on kind of the intersection between neuroscience and like Buddhist meditation techniques, which were really, really, I like, uh, there, were, there were a couple of interesting courses offered at Columbia University, which, which, which I was fortunate enough to take and, and gave me an insight into just how powerful it is. So the, the kind of the, the mental sciences, you know, anything to do with, with brain functions has always been a kind of fascination for me. And, and developing this capacity to kind of sit quietly or walk or whatever and, and really explore one's own gray matter and kind of turns one gaze, one's gaze on oneself has really changed my approach to all of these creative processes. You know, one wonderful thing that meditation can teach you is to actually dissociate yourself from your own either thought processes or whatever kind of processes happen in your brain Sometimes one can kind of stand outside and just observe what's going on in one's head without actually associating yourself with it. Like if you're having thoughts, you realize that, okay, I'm standing back and I can see the thought processes as they're happening. So a lot of the time, if I'm composing, I can just stand back and just watch my brain do its thing as if I'm separating myself from my brain. So I can then kind of tweak my process and like change little things like, okay, I want this to go in a different direction. So I make adjustments and then again, stand back and let my brain continue generating things. So it's a very, very strange kind of splitting of oneself into this kind of mental machine and then the reflective kind of me, so to say. Mm. And, and, and that's helped me kind of I hate this word because it's super like, you know, unleash your creativity. It's like in every bad kind of, you know, you know like Udemy course on like, you know, I mean, some of them are good, I'm sure, but like unleash. But anyway, really unleash this ability not to have any barriers. Like, I, I mean, some people get into the state through drugs and, you know, whatever. But really, I try to simulate that with this kind of meditative process that I can put myself in a really different state of mind. Get my heart rate down, get my breathing, you know, much, much slower. And get into this kind of semi-not-quite-here state where I'm really inside my brain. 
and then just you know put this on switch and let things happen. You know, I I'm not the kind of composer that waits for inspiration. I I just need to get to work. I just start thinking and let things happen. I don't I I'm you know of course inspiration comes sometime, but I am not you know the kind of person that wants to go for a walk or on holiday and go see a beach somewhere to get like a spark of inspiration. It's just like, no, I just sit down and turn my brain on. I say, okay, I have two hours to do something. Let's see what I can come up with. And this kind of process is just helpful. You just feel like you're flying in empty space. You feel very, very free. Just not to have any of those kinds of limitations, conceptual limitations, physical limitations, anything, technological limitations, you know, sometimes you feel restricted by the software you have and you think you just have these kinds of preset sounds and that's all you've got. But if you let yourself go off on this kind of wild tangent, then once you have an idea of this kind of mental sound that you don't know how to produce, at least you have a much, much clearer idea of what your direction is. You know, when you're working, you're going in a certain direction and not just feeling around and it can really streamline the process again you know that's not to say that one has to have like these one has to be like uh, blinded to any options on the peripheries because you know things that come up on the peripheries often are even better than what your first idea was so you have to be open to any other possibilities and you don't just go you know straight in one direction ignoring uh, what else might come up but Somehow it felt, uh, it feels to me that, at least for me, it's made my creative process somehow much richer. Mm. So, so yeah, I, I'd at least recommend that anyone who creates art at least try, you know, seeing what you can do with your brain. <laughs> and this can even be, like... If one doesn't want to create music in one's head and one still wants to work with, you know, the instruments one has, at least try, you know, learning some basic meditation techniques and doing 10 or 20 minutes of it before you start a composition session. You know, it opens one's ears as well. One becomes less reactive, more, more patient, more pensive, and I think a little more open-minded. You know, it it lets one see how arbitrary many of the boundaries are a lot of the time. You know, you often think there are blocks when really there aren't. So, yeah, this has kind of been an important part of my own creative development. And, yeah, I definitely recommend anyone just try it out. If you hate it, then don't. But, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a good idea, I think. Mm. So during that process, when does, I guess that reflection part happen? As in, how do you know something's good or bad? Because my understanding of, the, of meditation is, you know, you, it's, it's almost like passive in the sense that you're observing, uh, observing without judgment, right? right? Obviously, judgment and taste is like a really key element of sure. your musical identity. So when and how does that happen for you? Well, I think the judgment is like not kicking yourself for thinking something but obviously if you're having like menacing you know you're not going to say that they're fine you know <laughs> it's it, it's just a matter of of you know being able to dissociate yourself and then and then you kind of uh, redirect your thoughts in the way you want them to go so i i don't think that meditation requires a removal of 
the kind of assessment, you know, assessment function. And I think that in terms of how that relates to the creative process, one might experiment with things one wouldn't have before that one would have dismissed. And that sense of experimentation will let one discover things that, you know, one wouldn't have considered before. So I think that it just makes one a little more open-minded and a little more open to different kinds of possibilities. I think that with any creative discipline, one can very easily fall into a kind of automatic process. With, mm -hmm. you know, performing as well. One learns a piece, one does a certain number of things, you know, one practices, 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 and then you have a result and you do it. But to constantly question whether you're doing the right thing, to think outside of the box, to step back from this kind of automatic process and say, hmm, is there any way I could approach this slightly differently? Could I question the things I've gotten so used to and comfortable with? You know, I wouldn't say that we fall into this kind of zombie mode, but certainly a kind of trance mode that, you know, one doesn't always think consciously. One falls into a routine. And, yeah, you know, with creating music as well, you come up with a kind of melody, you slap on a beat, blah, 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 basic structure, and there you go, you've, you, you've produced a piece of music. But how often have you questioned the foundations of what you're doing? Like, just wait a second. Could I kind of do this totally differently? And a lot of the time, you know, many of the greatest artists have been the ones who have, you know, questioned the foundations of what we're doing and have really found a very different procedure and different way of approaching it, a different sound. And I think this kind of process, you know, stepping back is what really meditation can teach you. Like, not getting into this mindless process of just doing what I've always been doing. I've done it a hundred times, I'll just, you know follow these neural pathways as they've been built and reinforced and keep producing the things in the same way. Kind of this meditation process lets you or forces you to stand back and think consciously. You know, there's the, the word that has come to define meditation these days is mindfulness. Like be more mindful of actually what you're doing. Like, hey, this combination of instruments I've been using for so long, but could I do it differently? Like, how about I try something else? How about I undermine the things I've been taking for granted all this time? And many of the great, and it's not just art. If you think about many of the great apps, the many of the great products, many of the great companies, these have been, you know, brought about by people who have questioned those foundations. Like we've been doing something some way for many years, maybe hundreds of years, is there any way we could do it better? Like by now we take it for granted that this is the way something should be done. But how about we question those foundations? How about we undermine those, you know, basic tenets? How about we, you know, break down those structures and, and build something else in its place? And that kind of process of thinking outside the box, of stepping away from this kind of the way we've always done it mentality is something that, that at least for me, this meditative process has really facilitated because that's what it makes you do with your own thought processes, with your own kind of mental chatter that takes place in your head. You can just stand back from it and observe it and say, hmm, okay, I've been doing this for a long time, but is there any way I can kind of change the direction here?
Mm. So and so within within I guess it's it's so interesting because it feels like it feels like there has to be a tension in a way between that performance side where you're doing these pieces that are I guess like it's so important that they're produced in a not a particular way but in a in a way that people will other other people will think is good and then there's also you know this part of you which feels like really rebellious I mean I guess as an outsider I'm really I find that very interesting well you know performance is an unusual thing because you know what does a good performance mean and I think thinking out of the box can help one you know at least as a performer, find a different truth about the piece of music than one would have expected. So I think, uh, this is kind of my own opinion, which some share and some don't, that when a creator, a composer, produces a piece of music and lets it out into the world, that piece of music starts to take on its own life independently of the composer, of the creator. So for me, some of the greatest performances of the music by, say, Johann Sebastian Bach, are those that would have sounded nothing like how Bach would have heard that, that music, would have heard those pieces. They are on different instruments, you know, on a piano, modern piano instead of a harpsichord, and the kind of expression that the performer uses is totally different. Bach would have never imagined that these pieces could be played this way. But that interpretation is true to the music, true to kind of the architecture, the construction, the inner narrative, the emotions, the story, whatever you want to call it, of that artwork. Even if it's done in a very different way to how Bach would have heard it. I'll use the same example I did before. Let's say we take Hamlet. A theater company could produce a really amazing production of Hamlet that would look and sound nothing like what Shakespeare would have heard and seen. It could be totally different, different staging, different, different accents, different expression, different ways of approaching the characters, a reinterpretation of the characters, changing the dynamics between the characters, you know, shedding new light on the story. And all of this would be an amazing and true manifestation of that artwork, which is Hamlet, even though it's not what Shakespeare might have originally imagined. So Hamlet exists rather independently by, you know, over the many hundred years of history of performing it, especially quite independently of Shakespeare. And that's why, you know, using what the composer would have imagined as a reference point for a good performance isn't always the right way to go about it. Because in that case, any version of Hamlet that doesn't look like what Shakespeare would have seen would just, you know, not be any good. And that's simply not the case. So what makes a good performance? That is so subjective. You know, everyone is going to have a different opinion. But basically, I'd say that one that is able to communicate the, the, the musical matter, you know, and it's the same with any cover. You know, you can take a cover of a piece by a, a song by a certain composer. If someone wanted to do a cover of, I don't know, uh, any song, I'm just going to say something random, I don't know, Beatles yesterday or something, and, you know, produce it in a totally different way, different instruments, a different way of singing, but one that still is really able to communicate the message of the piece and is somehow true to that musical material, you know, then that is a, a, a faithful 
performance of the piece, even if it's nothing like how the original performers might have heard it. Obviously, if one were to put, you know, arrange yesterday for a U.S. Army marching band, you know, then, you know, and, and, and kind of turn it into a kind of parade song with, with symbols, that would sound ridiculous. You know, it's also a different adaptation, but it doesn't communicate the matter of the music. And I don't think, I, I really don't believe in this idea that, you know, interpretation means you can do anything you want. You know, you just have to do your own thing. No, that, okay, maybe it's an interpretation of yesterday, but it's a pretty dumb one. I mean, it, 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 it doesn't further the cause of yesterday as a piece of music in any way. It might be a parody, it might be funny, but it's, it's certainly not an expression of the meaning of that song, of that piece of music. So... When I approach a piece of music, again, I, as a performer, don't want to jump out of the framework of that piece of music, out of what that piece is trying to say, at least what I think it's trying to say. And I'm not going to impose something arbitrary and random just for the sake of it, just for the sake of sounding different. But within that world of the piece that it inhabits, in much the same way that, you know, if I were playing Hamlet, I'd have to try to inhabit that character. Yes, I might perform it radically, crazily, differently than anyone's done before, than Shakespeare would have imagined, whatever. But I still can do it with all those creative powers in a way that will kind of further that character's cause, that will be a true reflection. Well, true is not the right word because there's no one truth, I guess, but faithfully reflect what that text is trying to say. And that kind of conceptual headspace helps me get there. So I wouldn't say there's a discord between this extreme creativity and trying to satisfy one's audience because they expect to hear things in a certain way. One has to understand the stylistic framework of that piece of music. If I'm going to play a piece by Schumann, I should know the world in which that piece was composed and what the stylistic framework is and what kinds of things one might do which are not you know, native to that kind of music? And where are the kind of invisible boundaries in which I can freely operate? Uh, part of one's training as a classical musician is really getting to understand the musical language and idiom of each of these composers in order to then be much, much freer when performing their music because it feels like a language, like a language one speaks. If I'm going to, you know, perform a, a, a role in a play in German, the better I know German, the greater freedom I'm going to have with playing with my intonation, with the way I am phrasing things, then if I don't know the language, then I'll just be really trying to follow the sounds more or less, basically. So, so that's kind of a rough parallel, not a very good one, but a rough parallel I can give, you know, the better I know the language of a composer, the greater freedom I will have in my interpretation because I am a native speaker of that idiom. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a combination of learning the language, and for that one has to put in, you know, the hours, and, and then developing this kind of conceptual capacity to unleash one's kind of creative, creative powers. It's interesting how much you talk about the music as i suppose distinct from the individual person who makes it as you put it you know these things exist independently of, of the creator right um 
I think that's such a fascinating thing just because for so many people, their perception of their own music is like deeply personal. So do you feel attachment to your own music? Um, Absolutely. But if a performer can play this music in a way I would not have imagined it performed, but still is an effective way of communicating mm. that piece, I'm thrilled. I mean, I'm ecstatic because that means that I've, I've been able to put together you know, a set of notes on a piece of paper that makes its own sense, that has its own logic and doesn't mean need mm. me to explain it. Like it can speak for itself and someone can approach it with their own set of glasses, with their own viewpoint and can you know, bring something out of it that even I didn't know was there. You know? So I, I think that's a, that's a really important consideration to keep in mind about these pieces of music or any kind of uh, work of art, especially in fields such as classical music or theater or dance, where you know, a choreography, a play, a, a, a poem, a piece of music is one thing, and then the performer who performs it is another thing, you know. Mm. And that's a separation that sometimes isn't so evident in, in other types of music. That's why I used the parallel of a cover of a piece of music mm. like Yesterday, like a classic by Beatles, or, or, or Stairway to Heaven or Highway to Hell, or any, any song, mm. uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, whatever. Yes, we associate those pieces not only with a particular artist, but with a particular performance, like that recording. Mm. There's one recording, you know, the mm. official recording by Queen of Bohemian Rhapsody, so that, that's like the official version. In classical music, even if a composer records their own piece, it's much less official. That's not like mm. the version. No, the version mm. is whatever's written on the piece of paper. And mm. we might consider another performer's version of it to be much greater, <laughs> a much, you know, a much mm. more effective performance than how the composer themselves might have played it. So, mm. so there's, there's less of a connection between the creator and the piece of music they produce because, you know, the performative aspect of this genre is, is in itself a, a different and independent sphere, so to say, mm. of the process. And when we talk about the piece of music, we talk about the, the score, the, the, the printed page or the conception of the piece of music and not a particular mm. recording of it, which in mm. the case of rock or pop music, you know, that's what it would be. You know, when we think about yesterday, we think about Paul McCartney, right? I think he, mm. he was the one singing it, Paul McCartney singing it. If we think about Bohemian Rhapsody, we think about a particular recording. When you think of Bohemian mm. Rhapsody, you don't think of the score, like the written mm. sheet music for Bohemian Rhapsody. You think of that specific recording. So there, there is this kind of... Uh, more abstract approach to what this piece of music is. Uh, same with, with Hamlet. Again, Hamlet is not a particular performance of it. Hamlet is the play written on you know, pieces of paper and the abstract idea that that represents, not a particular recording or a particular performance of it. Yeah. I think in a way it makes lots more sense just because, I mean, the great kind of illusion or irony of popular music is just that you know, most people don't, sing their own songs right as in most of the music that is uh, right. in the charts sure. is it's just something somebody else made up anyway so it's not it's, it's so, so odd yeah it's it's bizarre <laughs> for me that we talk about like a song by britney spears but i'm like but britney spears didn't write that song like who, who is it by like i'm a, i you know <laughs> like you know or i mean i guess some of the time it is like very rare though i mean i don't know like to think of some like 
Britney Spears. So dated, you know. <laughs> that's, 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 I mean, that's, she's a great example because Ma I mean, many of her best songs were written by Max Martin, who's kind of one of the legendary pop writers. And, you know, he's had right. some uncountable number of hits. And it's like, is his, is, is, is that music more Max Martin than the also uncountable number of artists that have had hit records singing right. Max Martin songs? Right. But the thing is that, for example, his, when he wrote a piece for Britney Spears, it was for Britney Spears and it's attached to her forever. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's not like a piece by Max Martin that just one performer happened to perform. No, it's that, that piece for that person. And a lot of the time you don't even know who the songwriter is. At least I didn't, yeah. you know, because I, I, that's not my field. I mean, I, I don't know, Taylor Swift, she writes her own music. I guess she writes her own music. Also with Max Martin. Oh, with Max Martin. Uh, <laughs> so you He's, see, my point. Anyone yeah. you can think of. Right. Yeah, so, so, but like, but it's not like Max Martin has a canon of pieces that, that right. people are performing later on. No, he writes, <laughs> he writes, so, it, so it's a very, very bizarre uh, thing. And, and I find it interesting that these performers take the songs and it's called their song, like Taylor Swift's song or Rihanna's song or XYZ person's song when it's a song performed by them. They didn't write it. So uh, for me, like, takes a bit of a mental switch to understand how that industry works. I mean, the Beatles wrote their own songs, so that was really mm. their songs. But I guess it changes from artist to artist. I, I you know, I, I think the only one, the one thing perhaps that I bemoan is that I wish the writers got more credit because, you know, the great, great trouble classical music has had with Spotify, for example, is that there isn't a separate field for composer and performer because that's how it works in classical music. There's only one, artist. Like, it doesn't differentiate between the composer and performer. So when the classical music industry started, you know, uploading their stuff to Spotify and all these record labels, they were like, okay, what do we put in the artist field? Do we put the composer or do we put the performer? You know, for pop music, there's one artist. In the case of a, in the case of a Taylor Swift song, it's going to be Taylor Swift. You're not going to find Max Martin's name anywhere in the song info in Spotify. You'd have to Google you know, that song and find who wrote it. But that information isn't there. Whereas with classical music, the performer and composer are of equal importance. So who do you put in the artist field? So there have been a couple of services like Edagio that have been like Spotify's for classical music where you have both of those fields separate and equally as important. Because it's often really hard to search for things in classical music for, on Spotify because you search for a composer and some things are filed just by the performer, some things, you know, the inverse. So it can be a bit of a pain. So, so yeah, it's, it's more difficult to compare classical music to other genres of music than to other fields entirely, like dance and theater, where you have these clearly defined roles of creators and performers. And of course, you have many who are both, as I've said, but in that case, I'm listed as the composer and the performer, not as just artist, which is a really weird, really weird term. Like, so, but, but what part of the artistic process did you do? Because there, yeah. are, there are more than one. Hey, if you're enjoying the episode so far, I'd love it if you would leave a review or share it with a friend. It makes a huge difference for us. Thanks. Maybe to return a little bit to kind of your your process how much how much time do you actually spend on writing music is that something which is like part of your day or like how how do you uh, no how does it work no so my my composing is very irregular 
so my my practicing in terms of piano practicing is much more regular you know i mm. unless there's something going on i try to get in like four or five four or five hours of practice in a day yeah even, even now well now like the past week i haven't gotten in so much because partly because of like an apartment move and also i was just fi- finishing up my doctoral dissertation Uh, thank you. <laughs> I just finished writing. I sent them off. I'll still have a bit of editing to do when I get the first round of comments back from my advisor and first reader. But like, I finished the 260th page. It was a, a gargantuan tome. And so I, just to get myself in by the deadline, I, I had to cut on the practicing a bit. But yeah, now I'm certainly practicing a lot, even though I'm not performing that much because I'm taking this opportunity to learn a lot of new music. You know, mm-hmm. When you're in the middle of a concert season, hopping from city to city, you don't have lots of time to actually invest in learning new pieces of music. So now I have all the time in the world to really like learn pretty much everything I'll ever have to play, like all the repertoire, <laughs> like really, really spend this time doing some like big, big projects. So yes, I, I do get that time in. And the composition happens really on a project to project basis. So I'll take some time off. And then if I have a specific commission or a certain idea, then I will spend time writing more intensely and then there will be periods when I don't write so much. And also depends on my travel schedule in terms of concert performances because writing in hotel rooms isn't, isn't always the, 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 the kind of best environment. Why is oh. that? Well, I've done it a couple of times, but I like to have large chunks of time set aside for composition. So, so... I find that I don't want to keep starting and stopping. When I get the process going, I, I, I like to keep the brain turned on for several hours because it takes time to get back into it, you know. Yeah. Uh, doing half an hour a day is no good. I mean, you can get a little bit done, but it's better to stick those, you know, one week's worth of half an hour each day and do three and a half hours just in one go. Yeah. Because, you know, these ideas build on themselves and you get this momentum. And especially if you do a bit of like mental preparation to get into this zone, that does take a bit of time. So it's, it, it's good to stick around there for as much as you can. So, so yeah, it, it really depends on, on, on what's going on. Certainly now, when I've been writing my dis- dissertation for the past couple of months, I said, okay, aside from piano, I'll just be writing text and not notes. <laughs> I'll, I'll focus the writing on, on words and, and get back to music as soon as I'm done. So now I have actually many ideas in my kind of mental backlog of things I want to write, and I'm going to get back to it, you know, hmm. next week or so. Maybe this is a really silly question. Um, but There like, are no silly what, questions. What, <laughs> yeah. what form do you kind of keep your ideas in? Because I guess for me, it's easier with like pop music for me to conceptualize, but then with your music, which is either like very abstract or sometimes has a very specific form which is like defined by the genre like are you do you do you act do you write it down do you use logic like what like do you have a voice notes on your phone like how, yeah how does it work? yeah it, it's made it's um in the conception stage if i want to mark down kind of the idea of the piece then it's in writing but not in notes yet because i don't have the notes yet i write down what's going on in the piece So what, what the processes are in text, like this happens and then this happens and this is the idea and this is kind of the technique that generates the notes, blah, 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 kind of. And I also draw the piece. I draw the architecture. I draw diagrams. So 
John Corleano, whom I studied with in New York. He's really uh, one of the great, great composers today. And he's been an interesting model for me because he has also written for film. He actually won the Academy Award, the Oscar for the score for The Red Violin, which is a really ambitious film. And the, if you haven't checked out the score, whoever's listening, I really advise you do. It's one of the most incredible scores for a movie ever. I mean, the whole, the whole film is, you know, well, is about music, is about a particular violin, and revolves around this piece of music that he wrote. One of the most gorgeous melodies ever written. But he's been an interesting example for me because he taught me how to really write with this top-down approach. He said, you know, if you start with a couple of notes and then add a few more notes, like, you know, this kind of doodling or improvising approach, he said, that's like, a, that's like an architect starting a design for a building with like, what kind of little ornamentation am I going to have in this corner of this column? Instead of actually drawing the, ba the big basic structure first, what are the broad proportions, and then filling in the details. Or like a sculptor taking a block of stone and first crafting one fingernail at a time and then the next joint and the next joint without first kind of molding the shape of the material in more or less the broad structure and then doing the details. So he always said, think about what is the experience you want the listener to go through? What is the narrative arc, the dramatic narrative of the piece? What's the broad story you want to tell? And then you fill it in with the notes, with the words, with those little details. But you have to have that broad idea first. And he taught me various techniques on how to really draw even a whole opera. I haven't written a whole opera. He has written a whole opera. And he has sketches for how he essentially planned an entire opera without writing a single note, but planned exactly. I'm going to have a loud section here, then a soft section here. It's going to get crazy here. It's going to get faster here. And then I'm going to have a sudden drop to make the audience feel this, that. You know, have the whole roller coaster, essentially, before starting to put, you know, the blocks of wood, you know, on the, on, on the, in the fairground. So that really inspired me very much, you know, building building, uh, you know, imagining it like an architect would, kind of building this great structure and first seeing those broad proportions before I go into the details. So, you know, whether it's writing down what the experience is or drawing the structure of the piece and then, and then, you know, working in the details. And, you know, there are so many, like, forms for music and you know, with my limited knowledge of popular music, like this kind of chorus-verse approach that, you know, we take for granted. I wonder how many songwriters will say, actually, let me step back from this and try to build a different kind of structure, different kind of experience for my listener that does not return to these familiar kind of alternations of one idea, other idea, and then chorus-verse, chorus-verse, blah, blah, blah. But, like, well, what's a different kind of I'll use the same word, roller coaster. What's the different kind of joyride that I can put the listener on? How can I structure this differently? What's the, what is the ride that I'm going to take them on? And then find the right musical material, the right notes to achieve that. And that's not to say that there, there isn't a focus on things like melody or things like that. On the contrary, like with, with the example of my teacher, the melody, the main theme he wrote for the Red Violin is really one of the most beautiful melodies I've ever heard. I mean, it's, it's stunning. 
But it works because he knew what the emotion was that he wanted to communicate. He knew the role that theme would play in different parts of the film. He knew what effect he wanted that music to have on the listener. And that strong conception of, of the effect of the message helped him write a, a melody that nailed it, that really managed to do it, rather than trying to kind of, as I, as I said, you know, feeling your way in the dark, trying to find something that happens to then work out. No, you know what your goal is, you know what, what it is that you want to communicate, then you find the right tools to do it. And I think that's a very powerful way of working. Again, it's not the only way one can do it. I think, you know, improvising is fantastic, and also this is really important in jazz as well. It's like um, going for a walk in the forest without a roadmap and just discovering what comes, you know, going down this path, going down that path, and that's a beautiful experience as well. It's just a different way of approaching it. The way that Corleano showed me uh, this, this, this process and, and demonstrated to me the effectiveness in, in terms of communicating these larger ideas to audiences really influenced my own approach. And you can really hear that in even a long piece of music, let's say a 30-minute piece of music. You can feel how one idea follows another with, a, with this really broad conception and it doesn't feel like one is just on this winding path hoping one ends up home but not really having an idea, any idea how one is getting there. So there is this sense of direction that this kind of composi compositional technique can really imbue the pieces with and one can apply it to a really short piece of music as well, one, two, three minutes long. It, it can apply to kind of any size of piece. Mm. That is so fascinating. Do you, so when you've created this arc or, or the drawing or the architecture rather, are you, are you then filling in the blanks using a theoretical understanding of how to fill in the blanks? So you like, okay, maybe I need this mode in this place or like maybe I could use these kinds of techniques in this particular area because that will generate this kind of sound or, or, or is that, is filling in the blanks free for how does that happen? Yeah, so those kinds of things about use, uh, what kind of you know mode or scale or whatever, those kinds of things become automatic. So, as I said, like when you learn a language really, really well, it gives you greater freedom with expressing yourself in that language. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. The more clearly I've set up my framework for a piece of music, then the actual. Uh, creative process of filling in the actual material becomes much, much freer and much, much more liberated because I know exactly what's going on. Whereas if I am like worried about taking a wrong turn, then I feel much more restricted because I'm not sure exactly where I'm going with this. But when I know what, what, what the structure is, then things fall into place much more easily and then I can let my brain really you know, do its thing and, and, and come up with different kinds of musical material to, to fill in those blanks in a way that requires much less worry on my part on whether I'm, you know, going to get lost or not, because I already have my roadmap. I already have that kind of broader plan, and that actually allows for much, much greater freedom. Same thing in performing, actually. So the better I know a piece of music, the more I've worked on it, the more familiar I am with the style, and the more 
I understand the inner workings of this composition, understand the harmony, understand the way in which the different layers come together, understand the relationship between things that are in the foreground, like the melody and the thematic material, and their relationship with the things in the background. The better I understand and have really studied the essence of a piece, the much, much freer I can be in performance. I can, I can really be spontaneous, I can improvise with the material, not with the notes, but with my own expression of it, because I am intimately familiar with the piece. It, it feels like second nature to me. Whereas if I'm playing a piece of music that I've only just learned and I am, you know, shaky about, I don't have that sense of freedom because, you know, being free then is a recipe for disaster, for, you know, <laughs> you know just going, you know, losing one's way completely. And it will, it will sound nonsensical, you know, any audience member will just feel like, okay, I just don't get what's going on here. One wants to communicate something that an audience can understand. And that sense of comprehensibility will come from a combination of a deep understanding plus the sense of spontaneity that can make an audience member feel like this music is being created in the moment. And that's really the ideal combination that, you know, one strives to achieve in the performance. Mm. So this idea of, like, spontaneity and a thorough understanding, they're not in opposition at all. On the contrary, the better you know what's going on in the piece and the more fluent it is for you, the more spontaneous and the more inspired you can be in the moment when you perform. And the same thing with the composing. The more you understand the framework of the piece you're writing and the more you know how you want it to go, to put it basically, then that opens up so many doors for you in terms of the, the creation of the actual material. It, it's much, much freer. When you say how you want it to go, do you mean from an emotional perspective for the listener? Absolutely. Or do you mean f from, f I guess, like from a theoretical, like a theoretical structure perspective? Because obviously lots of music has, as you said, those like theoretical structures. Sure, but like those theoretical structures, they're not for music theorists, right? So, you know, one doesn't mm. write this music for analysis. And again, my use of inspiration from even something as seemingly dry as maths or something like that, those are just different ways to create dramatic narratives. So the reason why I sometimes use these mathematical processes is, for example, if you take something from like chaos theory, you set up a system which at the beginning seems very orderly, and then you throw in like a, a wrench, a spanner or something in the system that kind of makes things go a little bit awry. And everything then starts falling out of control. And that's a very exciting thing to listen to as an audience member. You start listening to something that seems orderly and things start going out of control. And then you're just holding on for dear life as, you know, everything is spiraling out of control and getting increasingly chaotic. It, it's like a roller coaster where you're first going along smoothly on a kind of horizontal plane. And all of a sudden it gets a bit steeper and then even steeper and then you know, it starts going all over the place. Roller coaster designers use exactly the same principles of creating a kind of narrative, but the roller coaster designer needs to know what, you know, needs to know, know exactly what, what angle they have to place which part of the roller coaster on to make sure that the roller coaster, the carriages don't fly off, you know, the, the, the kind of structure entirely. So it's a similar kind of thing. One has to have that intimate knowledge of the basic variables one's working with, but 
any of these kind of conceptual inspirations are just for creating, again, dramatic narratives, for creating stories, creating narrative arcs that will take the listener on a certain kind of journey. These are not conceptual things for someone to enjoy when looking at the score and analyzing my piece of music. No, this is all about the experience, all about the emotional, you can call it emotional experience for the listener, though emotional can be a reductive term because we often associate it with emotions and feelings, you know, is, to use this idea I keep coming back to, is an experience on a roller coaster emotional? No, it's physical. You know, you can have, you might have emotions, but there are many different kinds of experiences going on there. And I think that when we musicians talk about the emotions and the emotional experience, there are many different kinds of experiences a, a listener might have even physical ones, you know, you feel kind of the goosebumps or you feel that you're in a different kind of state of mind or you feel like you're flying or you feel that you're sinking or whatever, you know. A listening experience can simulate many different kinds of experiences beyond feelings in a reductive sense of the word. So, yeah. so yes, it is all about the experience, of course. Yes. One sort of I guess experience of my own that that reminds me of is just like when I was a kid and I first started getting really into playing guitar, mm. I would put earplugs in and then turn my amp up really right. loud when I could because it's the physical sensation of the loudness that is more important than the auditory sensation sure. of loudness. Sure. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are so many extra musical, to use this term, extra musical or extra, extra aural extra-aural extra experiences that connect to music. For example, the vibrations you felt, you know, when playing the guitar with the volume just boosted to the top and using earplugs, which was a good idea not to lose your hearing. <laughs> There's a huge visual aspect, of course, in our consumption of music. If you go to a concert and, you know, they put on a show, this will affect how we hear that same piece of music. And there is a, you know, huge visual aspect in the same thing in classical music as well, even if it's just a pianist at a piano with nothing else on stage, like a piano recital. There's a huge visual element as well in the way an audience member experiences a certain piece of music. Now, this is a pretty controversial topic because, you know, there are performers who will do certain things at the instrument in order to communicate the message of the music they want to communicate, which they aren't achieving through sound, but they are doing through like wacky movements and, you know, staring up at the ceiling to look inspired and, you know, flinging their bodies around in, you know, really weird ways uh, in order to communicate a sense of anguish or a sense of excitement. That's not to say that people shouldn't move. Of course, you should do what you have to do in order to perform well. But if one is doing things in order to communicate what one is failing to do if I were to close my eyes and just listen to the piece, that I'm not so sure about um, when it comes to performance of a piece of music in, in the classical sphere. It's, it's different in opera, for example, because opera is a visual thing. So the way you act, the way you move, the staging, the scenery, the costumes, those are part of the experience. You know, opera is not complete if you just listen to it on a, on a CD player. No, opera is a visual thing, but something that is strictly just about the sound, like uh, a, a solo piano piece of music, I think that, yes, do whatever you have to do physically in order to manage to produce the sound that you want, 
But if you're doing things simply to communicate things visually, which you fail to do from a purely musical perspective, I think that's... I, I, I don't believe in that. So you should be able to communicate whatever you want to bring to the listener through just the aural medium. And, and watching you do that might enhance the listener's experience. Absolutely. And I enjoy watching performers play. You know, if I had the choice just to listen or just to, or, or to watch as well, I'll often want to see the process happening as well. But I shouldn't have to see a performance in order to understand what it is they're trying to say. You know, I should be able to get the information I need to get from just hearing their performance. So these extra elements, sound, you know, extra elements as well as sound, namely the visuals, the, the, the physical feeling, these are experiences that affect, that, that affect how we consume music and how we understand what's going on. But they are very genre specific. So I think, mm. you know, feeling your body physically shaking is something that's very specific to, for example, rock music. You know, you aren't going to get <laughs> that in many other kinds of music. Like, you're not going to go to a concert of, of well, most kinds of jazz and expect you to be shaking in your seat. <laughs> like, you know, because that's not the genre for that. And if someone were to do that, it's, you know, maybe they can do it tastefully, but it would certainly be a departure from the parameters of that kind of music. So, so yeah, it, 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 it really depends on what kind of music you're, you're playing. I've done several pieces for, you know, audiovisual installations where there's been a kind of projection of different kinds of things. Sound is coming from different parts of the room, so there is this kind of uh, spatial element as well. So all these things really come together into the experience in really interesting ways. There's always the question of taste, but that's such an individual thing. And I think that's what makes art at the end of the day so interesting and beautiful, that it's so personal. You know, this is really down to our own uh, preferences. Uh, a lot of the time, though there is a general consensus, we still all have our own opinions. And that's what makes this such a remarkable thing to be doing. Are there things that you... I guess, a consciously try and avoid that are in classical world cliche, for want of a better word. In my performing or composing? In composing. Like in, in know, pop music, you have the like four, four, four chord pop song, which is yeah. you know, still very successful, but it's, it's like... Yeah, sure, yeah. It's cliche. Isn't it like uh, one, six, four, five, one, six, four, five, right? Yeah, so, uh, C major, A minor, F major, G major, C major. <laughs> like, uh, you know, the thing is that the, the landscape in modern classical music is very spread. It's very broad. You know, you had more clearly defined paradigms, central styles, that defined countries, periods, different kinds of musical styles over the years, over the centuries, you know, from the Renaissance, Baroque, Classical, Romantic, whatever, and the various subdivisions there. Today, you have a very open landscape, partly due to the internet and partly due to the kind of fragmentation or balkanization of, of the classical music sphere. I think one way of looking at modern classical music is like 
in the art house cinema. So you're going to have cliches in Hollywood, in the, which is like the, just to use a very, very rough parallel here with music, right? With, which is the, like the main pop music machine, right? The film Hollywood is a central kind of industry for music that is, uh, for, for, sorry, for film that is primarily consumed by, by mm. audiences around the world. And in Hollywood, you're going to have cliches, right? You're going to have certain kinds of, you know, storylines. The superhero movie. The superhero movie is actually perhaps the most egregious example of this because <laughs> you know it's going to end victoriously. Like, that's, that's, that's the point of it. Like, the audience knows that the superhero is going to win and no matter how terrible the situation might look 10 minutes before the ending of the film, you know that they're still going to come out victorious. There's no question as to whether they're going to come out victorious and that's why i have such a suspicion about this this field this entire genre and i still i mean i enjoyed deadpool because it's a parody of it and that i very much enjoyed but i've yet to really fully appreciate the superhero movie you know when i watched it because i was like i know what's going to happen i there, <laughs> there there is no challenge that the audience has to undertake uh, and risk that things aren't going to turn out okay, you know? It's like children's stories which have established our expectation that things will e end up happily ever after. You know, they can be beautiful, but there are some children's stories that don't end up so happily ever after, and those are really quite, quite entertaining. But it's, it's, a, it's a kind of storytelling that so relies on a specific mechanism on a specific kind of set of devices and especially ones that you know show a superhero at the beginning that is not exceptional and then finds that they happen to have a skill that others don't and then enjoy a period of time where they are very proficient with that and then they come across a villain that they cannot match and then they have a period of despair you know they think they cannot succeed uh, they are approaching a final battle at which they seem ill-equipped and seem like they are going to lose. But then through some stroke of inspiration, <laughs> luck, and, you know, bringing together of your ultimate powers and something, something or other, somehow you overcome this magic, you know, and incredible difficulty, and then you win at the end. And it happens in every single one. And, you know, so th that, that is like the, the greatest example of the cliché uh, cliched form and rom-coms follow these kinds of formats a lot of the time and whatever uh, if you look at let's say art house cinema every director every country every you know it, it's so fragmented that it's hard to talk about art house cliches because everyone is trying to reinvent the form with every film they make that's kind of the point mm -hmm. and that's why this kind of cinema does not appeal to greater audiences wider audiences because first of all it it appeals more to people who are actually in the cinema business. So obviously, you know, it's, it's designed more for other people in the industry, other directors, other, other film buffs, you know, people who are really obsessed with art film than it is for some person who just wants to have a nice Sunday afternoon at the cinema and just enjoy something that doesn't take too much of your, you know, brain power, so to say, to understand what's going on, you know? And it doesn't... And uh, a big, big, big difference, which is a good parallel with classical music, is, you know, if you watch a superhero movie once, you will pretty much have understood everything you need to understand about that film in that one time you watched it. 
if you watch a really perhaps bizarre or difficult, complex indie film, you will have to see it several times before you really can fully appreciate what's going on there. And it's the same idea with, with pieces that have the complexity of what makes up most of the classical music canon. These aren't pieces that are meant to be fully understood the first time you hear them. They are, they're designed for repeated listening and for your experience of it to grow with each, each hearing. That's why they're, you know, they're, they're designed in the way they are and can be a bit, bit intimidating. <laughs> you know, the first time you come across them, that's why this is a sphere that requires an investment of time uh, and patience, but it's really worth it. <laughs> and I really, really encourage anyone who, who hasn't engaged with it to, to give it a shot. It takes some time, but, but, but it's, you know, the rewards grow with more time that you spend in it. But again, coming back to your question, I've gone on a bit of a tangent. This idea, yes, of, this idea of cliches, yes, it, it's a bit harder to be cliched because there isn't so much of a central, central set of standards in contemporary classical music. It's, it's you know, very much like, you know, the, the example I gave comparing Hollywood with its clear cliches and Bollywood with its own clear cliches. You know, there will be different genres, different countries will have their own cliches. French film will have its own defining characteristics. And uh, comparing those kinds of uh, styles to these indie art house filmmakers that are constantly trying to buck the trend, and, you know, there, there, there aren't the same kinds of central standards, central rules that those kinds of artworks should follow. You know, much the same, you know, comparing experimental theater with, you know, soap operas and TV shows, you know, that, you know, that uh, you aren't going to have uh, soap operas that are going to challenge an audience to the extent that they would, they would, you know, need a huge investment of time to rewatch those same episodes a hundred times to, to get what's going on. You know, you can rewatch it a hundred times if you enjoy it so much. And I've certainly rewatched things many times and not, you know, and I'm not, not talking about high art here, but, you know, things that have been, you know, meant for you to only see once. So, so that it doesn't mean that you can't listen to the same song 200 times, but that song wasn't designed for you to have to listen to it at 200 times in order for you to understand what's going on in it. You're going to pretty much get what's going on the first time you hear it. So that's why uh, I've answered two separate questions in this, but they're part of the same thing, really. This field of classical music requires a different kind of time investment, partly because, especially today, one is using far fewer references than even classical music used several centuries ago, you know, there were things like sonata form, which yeah. is like a very complex version of what we would today call, you know, ABA forms, you know, like ternary structures. You have an idea, then a separate contrasting section, and then you come back to the initial idea. And composers would have expected their listeners to know that form so that listeners would identify where things would go differently if they did. Imagine, for example, that someone did a superhero film with, un, expecting that audiences would be already intimately familiar with the usual structure of superhero films and then change that structure. You know, you start off expecting that things are going to happen a certain way, but then things go completely differently and you have a totally different kind of ending without the usual victorious ending. You know, uh, 
I wonder how audiences would react. I'd be really interested to see a superhero film. I mean, Deadpool, again, is a parody, but still things end up, you know, happily ever after, still at the ends mm. of them. But one that on purpose bucks the trend and on purpose goes against the expectations the audiences would have. And that would be really interesting to see whether that would be well-received or not by audiences. You know, a lot of the time, I think audiences want to have that satisfying ending, so filmmakers stick to the same formula. And audiences are so, are generally so enamored of familiarity that, you know, this has yielded this whole obsession with franchises. We know these characters already, we know the basic plots, and we're just going to continue producing more material with the same setup of characters, you know, because somehow there's this fear of the new and unknown. And I think that's a little unfortunate. I think we should be, you know, more willing to challenge ourselves as audience members. And, you know, we all get this rush of satisfaction when we hear something that's familiar, you know, even a song we don't like the first time that we hear it, if we hear it 200 times and it comes on, you know, in, in the shopping mall or, you know, wherever, you get this, you know, fuzzy feeling because it's something you know. That's something that I think has, is uh, indeed a, a feature of the way we listen to things, but I think has been somewhat abused by creators because, you know, we just get too used to this. And I think filmmakers in Hollywood and, you know, a lot of these very commercial producers just are willing to stick to that and simply produce something that they know is going to make them money and not take a chance with something that might not work out, but is something that's, that goes in a new direction. I mean, how, you know, at, at least 40 years ago or 50 years ago, you know, people were creating new stories with each film they made this idea of franchises and these endless franchises and rehashing of same characters in different guises has been some, something that's been really started in the late 90s, essentially. And I don't quote me on this because I'm not, I'm not sure of the specifics, but I think there was a, a large-scale study done by several film studios that hired a bunch of experts to see what is like the winning formula when you do a new film. When you put money in, new, in a new film, how can you be sure what are the elements of that film that would guarantee its success? And the answer was franchises. Built on something that was successful, that you know, satisfied audiences, and they will come back to see those characters they already know and love, and sell merchandise, and get those Toy Story figures in people's homes, and make Toy Story 5, 6, 7, and God knows how many of them, because people will come to see it, and will be less likely to, to, to take a chance on something that's, that's unfamiliar, you know. So, you know, that's simply a, a reality of, of, of the way in which kind of not to be dismissive, dismissive of the corporate sphere because obviously music and art needs to make money and this is how we survive. But the, the, the extent to which financial considerations have taken over the creative process as the primary consideration, I think, have led us to make shortcuts for things that we know are going to satisfy rather than things that are more of a risk. You know, it's better if if these studios were more like, you know, and thinking about your, your previous sphere, like, you know, venture capitalists, like investing in things that could work, could fail, but are more risky rather than 
you know, investing in products that you know are going to sell a certain amount is going to have a run. Critics are, aren't going to love it. It's not going to, you know, be groundbreaking. But, you know, people are going to come to the theaters, buy popcorn, buy tickets, and you're basically going to get, get, you know, make a decent profit on it. There's much less risk-taking in, in a lot of these popular artistic spheres. And I, I, I think that's, that's, that's a bit unfortunate. You know, a film is a great love of mine. It's perhaps the great artistic love of mine outside of music. And I've had the fortune of working a bit in the film industry, having, you know, scored a couple of films. And when I studied the history of film, you know, in the early film days, everyone went to the theater. One couldn't see these films at home. And cinemas would show certain films on the weekends and there wasn't there weren't so many different genres so pretty much everyone who went to see films would end up seeing the same things so filmmakers were able to gradually increase the complexity of the films they were showing because people had a huge you know number of uh, a large number of references of all the films they've seen before of the structures they've been familiarized with so filmmakers could use those structures that they knew their audiences would be familiar with and slowly add complexity, add depth, add difficulty, and add layers of meaning, knowing that audiences that are familiar with them and have become kind of film experts, they'd be able to follow along with this. This is the kind of thing that's been happening in you know, classical music, you know, audiences that would become more and more familiar with the same kind of structures. They could be then fed more complex pieces of music and would be able to follow along because of that familiarity. I don't understand why that's not happening today with something like the superhero film. Why aren't they progressing in, 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 in depth, in, in intricacy, in, in, in complexity? I don't know. Uh, I don't seem to see that trend. I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on this, this genre. I probably have seen very few superhero films in my life but you know i think that sometimes perhaps uh creators underestimate their audiences i think we'd be much more open to things being a bit different from what we expect than the men in suits who approve the screenplays and plot lines would allow for, you know, I, I think that there is this inclination to make sure you get a reliable return on your investment than, than, than taking a chance. So, so yeah, this is kind of the feeling I have about the state of, of, of the industry today. I think one thing that's very interesting, I guess, drawing the parallel into venture capital, probably more so in music than in film, is just the point at which it suddenly becomes possible for normal people to make things. Normal meaning like economically normal people. So like basically software uh, and computer science is so important in the history of venture capital because it changes, it really just changes how valuable capital is relative to talent. Right. And I think like for me, that is what is so interesting about kind of the internet today and technology today in creative field as well, is that in a way that wasn't true even when I was a kid, 
it's so much more possible now for anybody who wants to to really have a good go at making something and distributing it to people and all the things that follow from that. And so I think like one of the things that I do think is very encouraging is that if you want, you can now choose maybe for the first time ever to consume things that most 99.9% of the other rest of the population won't consume. And so I think that that opens up many more possibilities for, I guess you call it like smaller or more niche or more risk-taking creators to, to, to create the stuff that they really want to. Um, you know, uh, a very interesting point that you mentioned is something I'd call the barriers to entry. So, mm. you know, now anyone with a laptop and, you know, a set of software that basically won't cost you more than a couple hundred dollars unless you torrent it for free and then it won't cost you anything. <laughs> you know, you have all the tools at your disposal to create music that, you know, talking purely about popular electronic music or EDM or something, you know, you can do, if you buy FL Studio, you've got the tools that Skrillex has or, you know, or Dead Mouse, or maybe you don't have quite the setup that they do, but, you know, you could... You don't... Certainly the setup that they had, right? Certainly, certainly the, setup the setup that, that they, they had. had, right. You know, yes, you can't produce a, 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 a film, you know, that would require many millions of dollars, you know, for it to look good just out of the blue. But at least with music, you can, and especially given the internet, you have distribution at your fingertips, you know. Back in the day, I don't know, we were talking, you know, in the past century... At the advent of recordings, how did you get a recording? You had to be well-known. It was very expensive to produce a recording. You had to have managers. You had to have producers. You had to have um, you know, access to these studios. And you had to have record labels that would hire you, given your reputation. Then you would go. These would be produced in a limited number. And you couldn't just record something at home and put it out there into the world. Distribution was expensive and Production was expensive, so there were many, many barriers to entry. You already had to be a successful performer, already had to be well-known for you to get the chance to make a recording. Now, you can buy, you know, decent equipment at home. You can sit down, you can record yourself on your guitar, put it out on YouTube for the whole world to see. You've circumvented record labels, you've circumvented distributors, you've circumvented, you know, studios having to, you know, rent an expensive studio, even renting something yourself is a relatively new phenomenon. You know, if you're talented, it's much easier for you to get your stuff out there than it was 50, 60 years ago, you know. So technology has allowed both, you know, the two things that you've said that, you know, for people in the far-flung reaches of the world to consume things that you happen to be interested in, you know, you can reach that niche set of, you know, dedicated fans much more easily. And it's also much easier for you to get your things out there. And I think that, and, and the same with like apps, you know, people can learn how to code. It's not expensive to do so. And you can build something. You don't need to have, uh, you don't need to hire a huge team of people to put something together uh, that could attract more investment later on. You know, there are many examples of, successful artists who started out just producing their own recordings, putting their own things out on YouTube, getting popular on social media, and then being picked up 
by a record label and then, you know, continuing things that way. Someone who built a basic app that was then, you know, funded by a larger company and then, you know, turned into another big thing. So I think that a lot of the time, especially in these kinds of fields, when we talk about venture and like investment, people who are doing the investing can already see a product uh, much more easily because you already see what that person is producing. The thing they would produce with more money would be more or less the same thing, just tweaked. But, you know, with a film, it's much harder to do because the person making the judgment as to whether or not they should invest that money has to think in a much more abstract way. Is this film going to work? I can't make a demo film for, you know, $100 or $200. <laughs> no, you have to put in a couple of million dollars to produce that film and then hope that it doesn't, that it's not a flop. So, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's kind of more risky in that sense. <laughs> so I understand the reason why art house cinema and these really experimental films are almost always on a smaller budget. You know, you, you, you very rarely get cases where experimental and really out there filmmakers have big budgets. Like Stanley Kubrick is one example who had the backing of a big studio that knew whatever he'd do, he would attract such attention that they were like, okay, just do whatever you want. You know, I'm not even sure whether they allowed him to do anything he wanted, but like, those are one of the, it is one of the few cases of like a more experimental, not mainstream filmmaker having the backing of like a big studio with a lot of financing. But it's very rare. You know, that's, that, that, that's why you have this kind of situation. I just don't know, you'll know more about this than me, of, of examples where there are artists who started out independently with the kind of art that was not mainstream, that really bugged the trend, that on purpose like deviated from the popular norms and still became hugely successful and continued doing their thing even with the backing of like uh, a large studio or something like that. I mean, I can think of Björk, for example, who is uh, in a very interesting position between the kind of popular and like wacky experimental fields. And I really consider her, in, for all intents and purposes, like a modern classical music composer. And she certainly has collaborated with so many classical composers because her approach is so non-commercial and not geared towards, you know, making a financially su successful product, but rather just doing whatever the hell she wants and knowing that people are going to come along with her on that ride because they trust her musical instincts because they are so good, and <laughs> she is, she is, she's a brilliant musician, is, is a kind of exception in that regard. But mm. again, you know the field better than I do. I... I guess the challenge is just that when you are really successful, you become assimilated into normal, right? Like, I would argue things like craft work back in the day were so weird, but now seem so normal that it's hard to even interpret Well, them. I guess with craft work, it's partly because they were the first ones doing what they were doing, and then other people started doing the same kind of thing. I mean, Kraftwerk mm. were one of the first musicians to take electronic music out of the classical music sphere and into the popular sphere, because what people, many people don't realize that, is, that, yeah. is that electronic music began with, classical music began with something called Musique Concrète, developed in the 40s, and then it really began to accelerate at a place called Darmstadt in Germany, which was a center for experimentation for new music. And then you had the centers for the research of contemporary music in Paris as well. And you had a set of composers 
The most important of them was someone called uh, Karl-Heinz Stockhauser. He is the father of modern electronic music. So he developed mm. many of the early electronic music techniques. And he was a hyper... Like, he wrote the kind of classical music that is, like, the most... The most uh, uh, kind of unfriendly for listeners. <laughs> We're talking, like, hyper, hyper dissonant, atonal, modern, like wacky out there absolutely like we're talking extended serialism for those of you who know what serialism yeah. is i'm not going to get into a kind of theoretical explanation of what that is really pushing the pushing the boundaries and that's where it all started and he influenced people like the beatles and then, then this kind of then moved into the popular sphere but the experimenting the experimentation with the possibilities of of electronic sounds began in this sphere Again, because this is the kind of low budget, so to say, well, relatively speaking. Well, it, of course, that was very expensive, what he was doing, but it, the kind of music was not geared towards the general audience. It was geared towards specialists, and that's why they felt able to push the levels of complexity and experimentation to such an extent. And then those techniques were adapted into the popular sphere. And, you know, today I will rarely hear someone using electronic music and the possibility of ele possibilities of electronic music in the in popular music in a way that reinvents electronic music or does something that is you know unthinkable and out there and reinvents the possibilities of sound or the genre. No, it's mostly like tweaking sounds, making good sounds. You know, things that sound uh, effective for the text of that piece of music. But I. I don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, really tell me if there's anyone like this that is reinventing the, this medium that is, you know, completely changing the way we're using electronic music when it comes to, you know, pop songs that are written. I don't know whether that's something that's part of the sphere, this kind of undermining of everything that we know makes money. Again, someone like Björk is someone who's taking instruments, making new instruments, having new instruments that's designed for her. Like she is really trying to come up with, with, with for forge a new path. But you know, a lot of the time, when I see the way people are using software, for example, for the production of of pop music, it's primarily with preset instruments, with loops, with samples. But it's rarely like going deep into sound design or coding or like recrafting the basic building blocks of, 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 of the material, we tend to get very comfortable. <laughs> you know, I think, and, you know, going back to what I was talking about meditation, it's a way for you to uh, get out of this comfort zone, to question those same foundations that make us continue doing the same procedures and routines and paths that we know has brought us success before. One of the composers of the 20th century that I admire most, uh, who, uh, on whose music I wrote my dissertation, actually, was called George Ligeti. So George Ligeti, a Hungarian composer whose music was used, actually, by Stanley Kubrick in a couple of films in uh, Space Odyssey. The first, this you know, the black screen that you see with this music, this very eerie music, is by Ligeti. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the music, the, this very kind of this music that has a sense of foreboding in Eyes Wide Shut. It's a solo piano piece. It's also by yeah. Ligeti. So Kubrick was a great, great fan of Ligeti's work. And his style constantly evolved and shifted. Like, if you take 
a composition of his from, let's say, 1975 and one in 1985, the styles are totally different. He never got too comfortable. He was constantly searching for new idioms, new inspirations, new ideas, and was constantly evolving. He didn't find something that he knew would sell and worked and kept just producing things that people wanted. He was constantly on the lookout. And that, I think, is so inspiring. I, I, I think that getting too comfortable and falling into a routine is, I won't say the enemy of creativity because I don't want to speak in such kind of strong mm -hmm. terms, but it's, one becomes a bit of a reliable machine producing things that one knows is going to sell. And mm. I think it's less interesting and mm. it produces less interesting art. And when industries like the film industry we were talking about and, you know, superhero films or any of these genres become these kinds of producing machines, just producing content, which is going to be ephemeral. You know, it's only going to be around for a season, but people aren't going to be watching that great film 30 years down the line. It's art for consumption, for making some money, but it's, and that's fine. And it brings people joy and entertainment, but that's certainly not the kind of art making that I am interested in personally, mm. you know, that makes you, that, that it opens your horizons, you know? Yeah. Have you ever listened to Tyler, the creator? No. I would recommend, I would recommend trying that basically just because I think I was thinking about this sort of question of who, who has taken great risks in modern popular music right. and been successful through those risks. And I think the, the two people that stand out in my mind are Tyler, the creator and Kanye West, actually, although both of them are so successful that when you listen to their music now, it probably doesn't seem as radical as it felt. But I remember, you know, listening to their albums, in particular, Tyler, he has gone through uh, such an enormous evolution that it amazes me that he hasn't lost his fan base with every album that he's released. And I don't know if it now, when you look back, if it sounds as radical as it was when, I, when at least when I first listened to it. But I remember like hearing his first album and it was just like, it almost felt like it should be illegal. Um, I think it probably it was, probably was in a couple of places. Um, partly just, you know, because of the, the stuff that he said on it, but also just, I think his, his uh, willingness to risk his career, I think I find very inspiring in modern pop, and there's not a lot of people like him. Well, uh, that's, that's all. That'll be my homework. <laughs> check up on check up Tyler the Creator. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, forgive my ignorance of, of of well, I of course I know who Kanye West is, but yes, yeah, so my lack of familiarity with this music. But yeah, I'll check it out. Well, thanks for the suggestion. One one question I was going to ask was just: Have you ever have you ever disliked your own music or disliked your own playing? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, one is constantly one's own worst critic. One has to be. So that's the only way one grows. You know, I've, I've, there were things in my performances I've wanted to improve on. That's how you develop. Uh, it's always useful to record, you know, yourself performing and then listen back. And, I mean, with composing, you know, again, you develop a set of tools, you get somewhere with it, and then you look for something different, you work on refining it, you know, bettering your musical idiom. You have to be critical. You shouldn't be complacent, you know. And 
again, it's the same return to the same idea of thinking outside of the box. Get out of your own comfort zone. If, if something's been working, look at it from a slightly different perspective and see what can be changed or what can get better. It is really important to keep this critical mindset. Of course, don't beat yourself up. That's, that's, not, the, that's not the purpose here. But, but yeah, it is really important to, to, to you know, be a reasonable judge of your own work. One isn't always a very effective judge. I mean, I've often not been so enthusiastic about performances of mine that other people have thought were sensational. You know, so it uh, one's not always a good critic of one's own work, and and uh, especially during the performance. So I find that <laughs> I, my idea, my sense of whether or not I'm playing well, is so unreliable when I'm actually playing. It's terrible because you know it's so dependent on what expectations I might have, and whether things are going the way I want them to or not. Uh, and if they aren't going the way I want them to, I might think that's not good, but it might be actually working very effectively. I just am not in the state to perceive that because I'm thinking about what I'm playing. So uh, it's such a strange, strange process. And I think there should be like, you know, more MRIs and like scans done on performance while they're playing, you know, checking the, the, the mental processes because it's such a fascinating process, you know, evaluating what you're doing while you're playing so you can make adjustments if necessary. But being in the zone, like you're juggling so many things. It's, it's a really fascinating process. Yeah, having said that, I think that it's easier for one to have doubts about one's own kind of productions, <laughs> well, what one is producing as a performer, because things can easily change in the moment. Whereas with the composition, you have time to build it and refine it. So it's more likely that the composition will be what you want it to be, uh, rather than a performance where there is more risk given the kind of one-time nature of it. A live performance, of course. I mean, if we're talking about the recording, you have, you know, time to redo takes and, and edit things, but, it, you know, in a studio. But with a live performance, especially if there are other people on stage with you, things can, you know, really take unexpected turns. So you should never have a too rigid idea of how you want things to go, and you should be flexible enough to adjust to changing, changing circumstances on stage because it's always going to happen. Nice. We have covered basically all the topics that I had. Is there anything else that you want to touch on? No, I think it's been a very comprehensive and fair discussion. Uh, yeah, it's yes. been super interesting. Genuinely, I think it's been one of the most interesting conversations that I've had probably in my life. Oh, well, so thank I, you very well much. I'm. I'm, I'm I'm glad you felt that way. I hope what I was saying made sense and your questions were very stimulating. So I really enjoyed having a chat with you about all this. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe, leave us a review, share it on social media and have a good day.